0: The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. I know that God has something really huge in store for us as we continue to walk through the Gospel of Luke. We're coming into some really... Powerful stories that Jesus tells to try and teach us invaluable lessons about life, about what it means to live for the kingdom of God and in the kingdom of God. Before we get started, though, if there's any way that we as a church can be praying for you, we believe that prayer unlocks the power of God. So if you wouldn't mind going to summitonline.tv forward slash prayer, you can list your prayer requests there and know for certain that there are people who believe in prayer that are going to be praying for you and your requests. So, today, as we jump into Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37, I've got to set up the context because Luke does not tell us what happened just before this conversation. And it's super important to understand why Jesus tells this parable about the good Samaritan. He tells it because he's in a debate with a Jewish teacher of the law, a religious leader in Jerusalem, highly esteemed, very highly educated, wise beyond belief. And he's asked Jesus a very, very important question. He asked, what must I do to be saved? If you're talking to Jesus... Any idea who Jesus is, that's a great question to lead with. What what do I got to do to get into heaven? What do I have to do to be saved? Jesus famously answers, you need to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You need to love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the number one and number two commandments. That's what it takes. That's what he lays out before this teacher of the law. And the teacher of the law, thinking through and processing probably much more with his mind than with his heart, he then responds with what I think is a valid follow up question. He goes, Okay, loving God, I get that. But who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? It, that, that's valid to me because it's it's, sent, it's in there. If, what must I do to be saved? Love God, love my neighbor as myself. Okay, so who are those people? It's the people that live directly next to me. Who am I supposed to love? And Jesus, instead of just directly answering the question, it says at the beginning of verse 30, if you read in the Greek, it says, Jesus decided to engage in the debate. He knows that what this religious leader is trying to do is not necessarily trap him, but he cares far more about winning the argument than truly learning the truth. But, but, Jesus decides, all right, I'll play, I'll play. You wanna know who your neighbor is? Sit down, let me tell you a story. A story about three types of people. Three types of people that after laying them out, Jesus will ask this highly educated man You tell me, which one of the three was a neighbor? Which one of the three loved as a neighbor should love? Now, I will tell you, this is the easiest multiple choice quiz that has ever been given after you hear the story. But within it, there are nuances and truths that we must see and must pull out. So, the first of three types of people, the first of three types that Jesus will share in this parable, he talks about the thieves, A thief says, what's yours is actually mine. I have every right to take it. Luke chapter 10, verse 30 says this. In reply, Jesus said, that word reply there is the verb that says he decided to pick up the debate. Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was all of a sudden attacked by robbers. These robbers were vicious. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him. And then they left him, leaving him half dead. So this is not just a give me all your money in your pockets. These robbers were ruthless, taking his clothes, leaving him for dead. Now, those who were listening on this day, they would have immediately recognized the path that this man was on. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho, it was known as the blood road. It had many switchbacks, hills, places for people to hide and ambush. You did not travel this road alone. Everyone knew it. It was 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. The reason they say going down to Jericho is because in that 17 miles, you drop 3,000 feet of elevation. So you're constantly on the downhill, dangerous road, and on this known dangerous road, this man is attacked. Everyone listening would have understand and been able to picture this there's a second type of person who then enters the story and comes along the same path there's actually two of them it's clergy two different clergy come down the same road and they engage this man but the clergy say what's mine is mine i'm gonna hold on to it i'm not gonna take anything from you but what's mine is mine luke chapter 10 verses 31 and 32 a priest happened to be going down the same road, so coming from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. He gave him wide berth. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So a priest and a Levite. In Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites had very, very specific jobs as it pertained to, to the temple, the temple in Jerusalem, where hundreds of thousands of Jewish believers would come on a regular basis to offer sacrifice, worship, and praise to their God. The priests, they were in charge of overseeing the sacrifices that were made to God. The Levites, they were over the worship services or prayer gatherings that happened in the temple. Both were highly sought after positions, revered in the community, and get this, They only served active duty four weeks out of the year. So one month out of the year, they were in Jerusalem. And now they're going back home. They can't afford to stay in Jerusalem. So they're heading back for their 11-month break to their hometowns. They're done with their religious duties. They see this man half dead and naked on the side of the road. And they go, ooh, I don't have time for that. No, they also, in their minds, are thinking, he might be dead. And if I touch a dead body, I will be rendered ceremonially unclean and unable to perform my religious duties. My service to God could be put at jeopardy. Here's the problem they're leaving Jerusalem, they're done for 11 months. They may have a conscious fear of touching a dead body, but it would not render them unable to do their job. They're done. So in reality, they just don't want to help. They see the need, but they don't want to engage. They have no religious obligation to do so. So therefore, they're not going to. They simply don't want to help. It was a selfishness and a fear that kept these two men from doing what God desires of all of us. They were more concerned with their own stuff than to waste their time on one of God's creations. And you can sit there and go, well, this is a parable. This didn't really happen. I mean, come on. If someone really saw someone bloody in a ditch, they would at least walk over and check on them. This is hyperbole. This is too much. Well, maybe. But in 1973, Darley and Battison, two Christian behavioral psychologists, they did a research project. They took 40 seminary students. Students who were choosing to give their life to full-time ministry, and they picked them for a very special, very special initiative. They said, I need you to write a sermon, and we're going to record all 40 of them, we're going to turn them into a large album, and then we're going to send it out across the nation. So these 40 seminary students are thinking, this is my break. They set up times for each of them to come into a studio and record their sermons. But that wasn't what was really happening. Knowing when each student would be coming into the studio to record, they had a woman, an actor, lay across the middle of the path that each student would be walking on, visibly hurt and in need of help. And only, only 40% of the seminary students stopped to even offer help. Some of them actually stepped over the woman they have video of this, stepped over her because she was in their way of getting to do their cool religious God thing. So we think this Levite and this priest are unique. Now, I think there's a lot of people, especially religious people, who see the need of this world, who see the need of individuals and think to themselves, I've already done enough for God. I've done mine and I'm going to keep mine engaging right now is not necessary. Me and God are good because of all the great things I've done for him. I think we can sit here today and admit that that's just craziness. But Jesus has at this point lined out two types of people. There's thieves and there's the religious. The thief thinks that what's yours should be mine. The clergy in this story, they think that what's mine is mine and I'm going to hold on to it. But then there's a third type of person in this parable. Luke chapter 10, verses 33 through 35, talk of a Samaritan. And the Samaritan says, what's mine is actually yours. What's mine is yours. I I live with open hands. Luke chapter 10, 33 through 35. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Verse 35, the next day after stabilizing him, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Look after him. When I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now remember, Jesus is talking to a crowd, but he's debating with a religious leader, with a teacher of the law. The moment that this teacher of the law heard Samaritan, he would have physically cringed. The Jewish people hated Samaritans for one reason, completely racism. Samaritans were half Jewish, but they had decided to intermarry with pagans. So it was impossible, it was impossible for a pure-blood Jew living in Jerusalem to look at a half-breed Samaritan without just going, you ruined your birthright. You had everything handed to you by God, and you chose because of your own lust and passion to intermarry and to bring in outsiders, and, and you are worse than them because you had it. And you chose something else. So this religious leader listening to Jesus tell this parable has to overcome the vomit in his stomach to think that a Samaritan could do anything right or good. But he does. He sees the man and he first triages and starts first aid. He bandages his wounds, okay? Well, if you recall, the man in the ditch is naked. So most likely, the only material for bandaging this man's wounds would have been the Samaritan's own clothing that he tore And fashioned into bandages to try to stop the bleeding. Then he took out the oil to try to ease the pain. His own oil, expensive oil, that he used generously to try to ease the suffering of this man. And it's his total stranger. Then he takes out his wine, his own wine. And you think, oh, well, that should be for the pain, but it's not. That was to disinfect. The the best way they could possibly treat the wounds and clean them out was be with the wine. So he, he uses his own wine, and then he knows that the man can't walk, so he dismounts off his ride and puts the man from the ditch on his donkey. That alone is more gracious and more merciful than any of the other people in this story have thought about being. But then he goes further. He takes the man to an inn, makes sure he has a bed, makes sure he has food, squares up with the innkeeper. And then I say the cream on the top, the cherry, he goes, now here's the deal. I've got to leave, but I'll be back to look after this stranger. I'll settle the accounts then, give him whatever he needs. We see, we see in this that Jesus has outlined three types of people, three types of people, And then, jumping down to Luke chapter 10, verses 36 and 37, Jesus, in the debate, he asks the question, okay? Here's what he says. Which of these three do you think, and and the word there literally means, became a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? I told you, I told you, this is the easiest three-question, multiple-choice quiz you will ever have. But Jesus asks, okay, It's not that they were neighbors. Which man became a neighbor? Which one became a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Interesting note. He wouldn't even say the Samaritan. He wouldn't speak it. It it was was the guy who did all the nice stuff. He, he He was the one who became the neighbor. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. You asked me, what does it take to be saved? I told you, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do those things. The rest of it kind of plays out. Okay? Now, we know that to be saved, you must have faith in Jesus Christ because of the grace that He's shown us. It is by faith, through grace, that we are saved. Okay, so this is not a doctrinal treatise on salvation. This is a religious leader asking a question and Jesus saying, hey buddy, you think that because you know a lot about God, you're good with God, but you're falling into the trap that many fall into. You know everything, but you don't live it out. So you need to go and do as the Samaritan did. You want to know what it's like to walk in the goodness and the mercy of God, then go show that goodness and that mercy to others. Now, I love the simplicity of that answer. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do I love God? Love your neighbor as yourself. Who's my neighbor? It's all those in whom you come into contact with that you can show the mercy and love of God to. It's something that we talk about a lot here at Summit. It's that for you mentality. The people that we come into contact with in our community, we're for that person. We're there to come alongside that person and help that person. Even if we are different from that person or disagree with that person politically or religiously, whatever it may be, we're still for that person for one reason, because God is for that person. And without using the for you language, that's what Jesus is saying here in this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, is that the ones who love God and know God are going to be for those who are hurting. Why? Because God is for those who are hurting. Jesus wants This lawyer, this teacher of the law, to avoid a very common pitfall. He believes that knowing the right answers guarantees him salvation. Having perfect biblical knowledge, but failing to do what it teaches, James says is useless. It's useless. Looking at the word and forgetting what it says, failing to do it, it's senselessness. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds to go with it, no actions, no living it out, can such faith save them? Another way of saying that, is that saving faith? You believe, great, okay, but do you act on that belief? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? What good is that? Now, I don't know that James is drawing from the parable of the Good Samaritan, but you can see the parallels there, right? Someone's naked, someone's cold, someone's hungry, and you just say, hope it gets better for you. Hope it gets better. Really do. Think positive thoughts, buddy, when you can step in and do more. Verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself does nothing about their physical needs. I'm sorry, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith. I have deeds. I'll say, Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? You you know and trust that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder at the knowledge of God, but they don't live for Him. James, what I believe to be the most practical book in the New Testament, makes it so clear here your saving faith is going to be lived out in your actions. So, what can we learn? What can we learn from the Good Samaritan? Well, our faith must be lived out by treating everyone like God treats everyone, okay? We must make the people we come into contact with our neighbor, the ones we are to love. You can't hide behind your knowledge of God. You need to become his hands and feet. God is for everyone, and especially for the hurting, the disenfranchised, the lowly, the least of these. It's difficult sometimes to look across that socio barrier, that racial barrier, and think, oh, that's my neighbor. But if they're a creation of God and you come into contact with them, they're your neighbor. They're the ones that Jesus says you are to love. Will you be the one who turns a blind eye to the hurting or will you be the one who helps? Even. Even if it comes at a great personal cost. Because I'll be honest, church, there's there's a lot of times where I look at people in need and then I weigh how much effort it will take to help that person. And a lot of times I go, I'm not sure if I'm willing to put that in. It's just me being candid. But you look at the Samaritan who gave up the clothes off his back, his oil, his wine, his, his donkey, his money. I mean, that's like the whole gamut right there for a total stranger. Why? Because that stranger needed it. The stranger was hurting. So as we wrap up today, just really one question. And I know we all want to be the Samaritan. Okay, all of us want to say we're the Samaritan, but I need you to be honest with yourself right now. And here's the question. Of the three types of people, which type are you? Which type are you? Are are you like the thief? Are are you a taker? Once again, we may not want to admit this, but please, please... Are you a taker? Do you think people exist for your benefit? I've been guilty of that. Just completely turning my mind off to the needs of others and only focusing on my own needs, seeing how that person can better benefit me. I've done that. Are you like the clergy? Are you an abstainer, a conscientious objector to helping people because I've done more than enough For God already, do you think people need to fend for themselves? Because after all, you do. You take care of you. You're not asking anyone else to help you, so why would you need to help someone else? Are you you like the clergy? Or are you like the Samaritan? Are you a good neighbor to those that you come into contact with? Are you one who thinks that people need to receive the same mercy that you have been given? You see, because you have been shown mercy by God, you have been given grace by Him. You are saved and redeemed because of His infinite love for you. And in response to that infinite love, He asks you then to share and show that same love and compassion to those that you come into contact with. It's an outpouring of the love that he's already shown you. And I would say, church, that the best way to become like the Samaritan, to become a good neighbor, is not to just go out and start doing more good. It's to instead embrace the good that God has given you through his son, Jesus to place your faith in him, allow him to transform you from the inside out, to put to death some of your sinfulness, some of your selfishness, some of that flesh that says, what's yours is mine, what's mine is mine, and instead change that to go, I've been given everything, so what's mine is yours. I give it freely because it's freely been given to me. That grace is sufficient for your salvation has been given to you. Church, I ask today in light of what Jesus has taught, are you willing to give that grace and that mercy to others? To those that you come into contact with, to those that you may be related to or work with, will you extend that mercy? Will you be the good neighbor? Will you be the good Samaritan? Because Jesus says that those who want to inherit eternal life will love God and love their neighbor. May we be a church and a people known for loving our neighbor. Father, help us to do just that. Help us to be more than just religious people who know a lot about you, but instead let us do what you've called us to do. Let us love our communities. Let us love our neighbors. Let us be mindful of those who are hurting. May we show your compassion and mercy to those who desperately need it. Help us overcome our own selfishness and our own pride. And God, may we be for you, your hands and feet to this world to show them your love, your kindness and care. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.